Well, several years ago, the lead singer Bono for the band U2. Do people still listen to U2? Still cool? Okay, good. Thank goodness. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a relevant servant illustration. Um, the, the topic of his faith came up in the middle of an interview. And he began to speak about the difference between karma and grace. And the interviewer, himself perplexed about this, asked Bono to elaborate, so he explained. And I'm, I've got his words up here on the screen. We'll try to read them together. Here it is. He says this. This is Bono. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so now you sow stuff. Grace defies logic, reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. You know, Bono is saying this. He's saying that grace is surprising. It is unexpected. Why? Because at its core, it is about giving you good where you clearly deserve bad. I've said it like this, that grace isn't merely unmerited favor. That it's actually contra-merited favor. You've done bad and God gives us good. That's the picture. And I think that the culture says we get what we deserve, right? Not only with people, but with God Himself. You see, most of us live life and we think we're aware of our failures, we're aware of our shame, we're aware of our sin, and we think that God mildly tolerates us at best, or at worst, He wants nothing to do with us. But I want to ask you a question tonight. What if your failures couldn't keep God away? What if your failures could not keep God away? What if instead they were the things that moved his heart to draw near to you? In other words, have you ever known contra-merited favor? Have you ever known grace? You deserve one negative thing because of the way you've lived your life or acted. And then, wonder of wonders you've unexpectedly received good instead. You see, I'd like to show you tonight that the story of Ehud demonstrates a God who is moved by the failures of His people. God's people had done the unimaginable. Do you know what that was? They abandoned Him. They abandoned God. And instead of abandoning them, God does the unthinkable. He moves closer in. Instead of karma, we see grace. And if you're reading this right, this story shocks us quite precisely because it's unexpected. But y'all, God's gracious deliverance is always unexpected. And tonight we're going to look at that deliverance. We'll see it in three ways. I like these three headings. I hope that you'll take them in or write them down. First of all, we'll see an unexpected bondage, strong language, an unexpected Savior, and then lastly, an unexpected salvation. So an unexpected bondage. Let's jump in and, and take a look at what I mean by that. So here we are. Whoa. 
Okay, yeah, font jacked with us a little bit there. Verses 12 to 14. Turn your eyes there. Let's read it real quick. Here we go. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the story opens up and tells us a bit about what's going on. Do you remember from last week what had happened? God had rescued his people. They begin to flourish, and now the unimaginable has happened. They've turned away from him. And that basically means that God's people have now begun to worship in idolatrous ways the gods of the nations around them, particularly the Moabite people here. The Moabites were non-Jewish people. Now, what's interesting, though, about the Moabites is this, is that they were sort of a has-been people. If you might remember when the God's people were coming up out of the land of Egypt, they weren't even really a threat at all. They were scared of Israel. And now you get the sense that like, oh my gosh, the people that were once scared of God's people are now owning them. They are now oppressing them. They were now holding them down and making them, as the text tells us, pay tribute and taxes to the king of Moabite, the king of Moab, and his name was Eglon. Y'all, here's what I want you to see today. I want you to see, though, that it's something amazing. So what does God do as they begin to turn their hearts over, abandoning him, turning their hearts over to worship these other idols? Well, the text tells us in verse 14. Did you see it? It says, And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. And the text is telling us, y'all, that God himself, that the Lord strengthened in verse 12, Eglon, that it was Yahweh, their God, who strengthened the opposing king to oppress his people. And I think that if you're reading this story, you go, hold the phone. Because what you're saying, Ryan, is, is that God is actually putting his people into the bondage from another, of another country. And if you're listening, you're right. That's exactly what's happening. So what is this text telling us? Well, I think, first of all, is that some of us might say, whoa, what does that mean? That doesn't seem fair. It seems like God is doing something horrible to his people. And when we see this, when we begin to see that God is treating his people like this, something comes to the fore, as it were. We need to understand that this is God disciplining his people. That this is God turning his people over to the hand of the oppressors to chasten them, to purify them, to help them taste, as it were, their own misery for a little while so that they might turn back to him. And here's the thing. You might go, I don't like that. And I'm saying, I understand. I don't either. But if God is God, he is able to do that. Here's my question. Do you have a God that you think can discipline you? Is that, does that fit into your mind anywhere? Because if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand the God of the Bible that much. And I say God of the Bible, not just the Old Testament. Look what the Hebrews writer says in chapter 12 of Hebrews. He says this, The Lord disciplines the one He loves. If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So class, what is a mark of God's love for us? It's that He disciplines us. He trains us. He trains us and He cares for us in that way. You've heard it said like this, there is tender love and then there's also tough love. And what the Israelites are facing in this moment is tough, is tough, tough love. 
And y'all, here's what, it, here's what you need to see. He does this for the purpose of getting them to turn their hearts back to him. You see, they've turned their backs on him saying, we don't want you, we want other gods, we want to do things our way. And God says, I want you to want me. I, and that's the only way you're ever going to be happy. Come back to me, the God who loves you and has saved you. No, uh-uh. We want what we want for us, not what you want for us. It'll hurt, says God. Nope, you're wrong. You're wrong. We're right. And God says, okay, here you go. I'll be here when you're miserable. And that's exactly what happens. Y'all, you get this. Hang with me on this. Let me show you why you already intuit this. If a young child is playing around a hot eye on the, on, a, on the stovetop, on the range, for the parent to say, do not touch that. If you touch it, you will hurt yourself. And if the child continues to play with it and touch it, right, the child will experience pain. And guess what happens after they experience pain? They learn what? That daddy wasn't wrong after all that he knows that you're not supposed to play with things like that that are hot. And so there's an experience of that pain that's meant to bring you back to God himself. And I think that this is something you need to understand. Your sin, my sin, has real consequences. It really does. I have the, uh, the privilege every year to eventually walk through the premarital counseling process uh, with, with students that have come through this ministry. I eventually will officiate their weddings. It's a real joy to sit down and listen to people talk about, these, about their stories. But without fail, when it has occurred, and couples begin to share, for example, their sexual histories with one another, you begin to see the real hurt that that causes in their future spouse. Now, my point here to you is not to shame you. That's actually not my point. My point is for you to begin to see something. That God does forgive you. That He cleanses you and makes you whole. That He calls you righteous in His sight. But y'all need to understand that our sin really does have consequences. And those consequences are meant to make us feel thirsty and to long and to cry out for Him. And because we, a good father would do that with his children, I want you to see that God does that with his. And what ends up happening? Exactly what you think. They've run after these other gods, and they what? They cry out. Verse 15, the people of Israel cry out. And that begins to take us into our second sort of component, the second sort of component about our, um, of, our, of our text. Now, I need to mention this before we go there because it's a great quote that I want to share with you. I want you to hopefully see that no one, um, no one likes discipline, okay? This isn't necessarily a pleasant thing. But God in His kindness will actually paddle our bottoms, so to speak, to get us to see and to turn our eyes back onto Him. I love what C.S. Lewis writes. I'm going to share a quote with you. He's basically saying that God finds our desires for, for Him, for other things, that He finds them to be not too strong, but too weak. And listen to what he writes. This comes from a very famous essay of his, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, 
It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, meaning for porn, for drink, for relationship, for a gossiping tongue, whatever it is, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at sea. We are far too easily pleased. It is a kindness of God. It is a hard kindness of God. But it is a kindness of God for Him to let you and for Him to let me taste our misery. Because on the back side of it, it's meant to drive us back into His loving arms, to the heart that really pursues us, to the heart that we've already talked about tonight that sings over us with great joy and with great delight. Secondly, the second thing I want to show you is not only an unexpected bondage, but an unexpected Savior as well. Y'all, this is where the story begins to get good. Let's look at it a little bit. So here we have this man named Ehud. He is a left-handed man, and he happens to be from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this story if you are a literature major, is wonderful because it is laced with irony, it's laced with satire, and it's this great story. Let's see if I can unpack it for you a little bit. Benjamin, the tribe which he comes from, literally means the son of my right hand. And Ehud is a left-handed person. And you begin to sense that something might be happening, that something's going to happen at the hand of this deliverer and this judge Ehud. We learn that he has a sword about yay big and it's strapped to his right leg. And what's so impressive about this guy is not so much that he's got a sword strapped to his leg, in my opinion, but that the text doesn't actually say in the Hebrew that he's left-handed. The text in the Hebrew says that he was bound or crippled in his right hand. And the image there is that he can't use his right hand. That's what most scholars seem to think. And I think that's brilliant because God's people are about to be delivered by somebody who is deformed, by somebody who's crippled. That's a really, really amazing part. Let me show you what else is impressive about this, uh, about this Savior itself. Eglon is, going, uh, Eglon is the king, of course, of the Moabites, and Ehud is being, is being tasked with bringing tribute into the uh, into. Uh, Eglon's court. Tribute would have been something probably like grain. It would have been produce. And you begin to get a sense that something's going on with food too because what do we learn about Eglon? He's fat. And so literally Eglon has been getting fat off of the tribute that other people have paid. And what I want you to begin to sense is that there is this oppressive fat king who is from a country that is a has-been, and is that, that is what is oppressing Israel. They are in dire straits. And what you see is Ehud comes about, and he brings about salvation for God's people. We'll get into that more in just a second, because I want to focus primarily on Ehud himself. Ehud himself. And here's the point I want you to see. 
that Ehud is so impressive precisely because he is not. In the, in the, standard, in the standards of the world, in the eyes of the world, he is not impressive at all. His right hand is perhaps crippled, which was the hand of authority. It was the hand of power. It was the hand of influence, so to speak. And the left hand was seen, it's actually seen as the sinister hand sometimes. The hand that is less than. And here that's all Ehud's got. And God uses him to deliver his people. Here's the point. I want you to see that this is exactly the sort of people that God uses to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world. It's the nobodies. It's the people that nobody else would expect, right? It's the folks that are the has-beens. It's the people that the world looks at and scorns and shames. And it's those people that God uses for his redemptive purposes. How many of y'all have ever heard of the name Johnny Erickson Tata? Great. Okay, a few. Okay, great. She is an older woman now, but when she was 18 years old, she was diving into the Chesapeake Bay to swim. She misjudged the depth of the water. And when she jumped in, she severed the uh, fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae and she instantaneously became a quadriplegic, quadriplegic. Throughout her life, however, after wrestling with God over this exact issue, she has become a powerful, powerful voice for the gospel. She has had a profound ministry for special needs people. And if you just read her writings, you get a sense of how beautiful God is when He uses people that are powerless, when people who don't have influence. And if you were to read some of her stories, I'm going to put a quote up here because it's awesome. She says this. I I don't know if I could ever say this, but she has. She says this. This paralysis is my greatest mercy. I don't think like that. I wish that I did. But what she's saying is, it is my weakness that has made me great. And it has been God's mercy to me that this is my story. And y'all, I just want you to see that our weakness, our weaknesses, the places where you feel like you fail all the time, Would would you dare to believe that that might be the very place that God wants to use you to accomplish His purposes in this world? You see, what that means is is that on this campus at a place like TCU, if, if Jesus Himself were to walk through that door, you probably wouldn't even notice Him. Because He wasn't flashy. Because God uses the nobodies of the world. And what that means is, right... What that means is, is that some of the most pretty, put-together places on our campus, that's why they often feel like the most darkest places on campus. And that when you come to a place like RUF, where there's people from all different sectors, different skin colors, and different you know, um, pockets of campus, different clubs and groups and organizations, it's really, really beautiful because you begin to see that God uses all sorts of people to accomplish His purposes. And you know, what, the, what else this means is that I think that sometimes what we do is we say, I'm writing myself off as unimportant because I don't think that God can use me. And I want to say, what if your weakness was the thing that qualified you? You see, some of us think, 
For God to use me, I better get my stuff together and I, might, and I need to be perfect, right? So I got to always be reading my Bible and I always got to X, Y, and Z. And, and I just want you to know that like, that's not the way it works. Here's why. Who do you identify with? People who are perfect or people who don't have their stuff together? People who have got it all together or failures? Who are the people that you look to and you go, I can do that. I mean, I can, be, I can be a mess, and if God uses messes, then I'm like, I can do this. And here's what I think. TCU needs more of that. It needs a picture of Christianity that broken, has-been train wrecks are out doing the job that only God Himself can do. And y'all, that's, what, that's why. Why does God do this? Because at the end of the day, all glory, all praise... And all honor will not be to you, but it will be to Him. And when the watching world looks around and sees guys like Ryan Anderson doing ministry on this campus, and people really know me, they can't help but say, y'all, that ain't Ryan, that's God. And the same is true of you. And I just want to say, would you begin to have the thought, the category, the mindset that maybe the thing that God wants to use you most in is where you have it least together. That's what Ehud's telling us. And it's not just that. It's not just that God uses our weaknesses. This is exactly what God does. But that God delights in using the unexpected people to accomplish His purpose. It's not power. It's not pretty. It's not popularity. And in the case of Ehud, it was precisely his weakness that made him fit. And y'all, if that weren't enough, we see God in His grace also brings about this unexpected salvation. So lastly, an unexpected salvation. Unexpected bondage, unexpected Savior, and unexpected salvation. This is where the action begins to rise. Did you notice it? It begins to slow down a little bit. It's like, it's like slow motion. Here's what happens. Ehud presents the tribute, right? And he begins to walk away. And as he's walking away, something happens where he's like, I get to go back and do this deed. And he comes back and he says to the king, O oh, king, I have a word or a message for you. Now, in Hebrew, that word is debar. And debar can mean word, message, or thing. And what's interesting, if you would have been a little Jewish boy or girl and heard that, you would have gone, <laughs> oh yeah, he's got a thing coming. Right? He's got a word for you. Because all of us know what? We know what the word is. We know what the matter is. It's 18 inches of steel strapped to his thigh. That's what the word is. That's what the message is. And so then, as he walks in and talks to Eglon, he says, I have a message to you from God. And Eglon sort of stands up as of this sign of respect and literally exposes his abdomen. And then Ehud, like, let's read it, sit in this for a second. I love it. It's so, it's so amazing. He says this, And he rose from his seat, and Ehud, slow motion, reached with his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the image there is that what happens is, is that blade doesn't even get taken out. 
And the impact of it is, is that, I mean, the text says it. His excrement spills out. He cuts him so deep, he defecates through his tummy. That's what's going on. And you go, why in the world is that in the Bible? Well, I think it's, I, I think it's, a, it's we need to know the Bible is not a tidy book. It's just not. And I love that God gives us real glimpses and images of like what real life is all about. And when you get stabbed in the belly with 18 inches of steel, your poop comes out. That's what happens. And I love that the Bible shows that. That's not all. Keep, let's keep going. What happens? Ehud leaves. He escapes, right? And now you've got these guards sitting at the door. And they're like, man, this is like taking a while. What's happened with the Eglon in there? And they say, maybe he's relieving himself. Now, why do you think that they would say, maybe he's relieving himself? Because they smell relief, right? They're smelling the dung that's all over the floor. And they don't want to embarrass him because they don't know he's dead. But when it finally, finally gets to be too long, they unlock the door, they walk in, and what has happened? Eglon is dead, the text tells us. And what's interesting is, is that Eglon's name actually means, it means little cow. The fattened calf has been slaughtered. That's the picture. Now you go, why in the world is this so important? Well, look what happens. Because of that death, Ehud escapes. He's able to overtake the Moabite army, slaughters 10,000 of them, and God's people have been, were delivered. Moab was subdued, and verse 30 tells us, and the land had rest for 80 years. Y'all, here is the point that I want you to see and to understand about this last point, this idea of the unexpected salvation. This text is telling us that the people... The people did nothing to be liberated. That their salvation was something accomplished for them by someone else, and it was brought or given to them. They were liberated, right? By the work of another. And what you have to understand about Christianity is this. Salvation, deliverance, and liberation in Christianity has nothing to do with what you're going out and doing. It has everything to do with the work of another on your behalf. And I think that we've got to come back to understanding that. And it's what Ehud shows us because I think most of us wear ourselves out thinking, if I can just get my stuff together, if I can just be holy enough, if I can just read my Bible enough, if I can just come to RUF enough, then God will finally have something to do with me. And the text is telling us the people were oppressed. It was Ehud that did the job. Somebody else did this for him. The game was over as soon as Ehud laid the steel into the belly. And the people got to experience the spoils of deliverance at the river that day. What does this mean? What would it mean for you if you knew that at its core, Christianity was about God doing everything for you and God empowering you to be able to accomplish His purposes in the world? That all you had to do was just show up. And you didn't have to perform to, do, to get anything. Does that mean you don't have to walk and learn how to walk with God? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. My point is, though, is the vast majority of the Christian life is, it's, not, it's not about, not the vast majority, the entirety of it is not about earning anything. It's about the mop-up work, the clean-up work. Here's an illustration real quick. I remember when I was growing up, we used to, in the, in the summer, uh, very, play a ton of baseball. 
And you know it was always one of my, like when I always played the best? I always played the best. I saw the ball better coming off the pitcher's fingers. I was a better fielder. I played first base. I was a better first baseman when this would happen. When the other team wouldn't have enough players and they had to forfeit. That's when I was at my best. And what do I mean? Because we would often stick around and play. Because we, just, we had the time. So a couple of guys would go over to the other team. And, uh, you know, they might play one down. And, uh, and lo and behold, you know, I'd go 4-4 four four or something like that. And the picture is, is what? Why do you think, why do you think that I played as, as best as I could? The best I played? Because the game was already over. We'd already won. My identity as a baseball player was not on the line because we'd already won. You see what I'm getting at? So I saw the ball better. I feel the better. And here's what I want you to see. That's exactly what the Christian life is. It's a salvation that is accomplished by somebody else. It's given to you for you. Well, I need to land the plane because I'm getting long-winded here. But I want to share one more story with you. The thing that you begin to see over and over again in Judges is that the deliverance that the judge brings doesn't last. It doesn't stick because the people constantly, constantly fall back into what God has previously saved them from. We got a lot more judges to go throughout the book. And here's the question for you. Does that sound familiar in your life? Where you pray to God, God, I'll never do this again if you'll just X, Y, Z. God in His kindness does X, Y, Z, and then what happens? You're right back in the mess that you said you'd never be in again. And then you pray, God, ABC, if you'll just this, I won't ever, but He does it, and then you're right back in it again. Right? Because why? Because our problems are us. Our problems are our hearts. Our problems are we need a greater deliverer. We need somebody to come that's going to be better than Ehud to come do the job and make it last and to make it stick. And here's the thing. This means at every turn, Judges leaves us longing for a true deliverer to come and to save us once and for all. A salvation so secure that we won't ever, ever, ever fall away again. And y'all, here's the thing. That day is here. That day is now. And it is still coming. You see, there was another day coming when yet another king would be stabbed. And his death would liberate people. But... This time, it would not be God's enemies. It would be God Himself. This time, the judgment of God would fall upon God Himself in Jesus. And in so doing, Jesus dealt the death blow to all the real enemies that you and I face, our sin and death. And because of this, y'all, you can know absolutely that God 100% accepts you as you are despite all that you have done. It is, the picture, it is picture proof of the lengths that he goes to to be gracious to you, to give you what you most certainly do not deserve. Romans says this, that if he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give to us all things? There's the hope of the gospel. Here's the question. Do you know this deliverer? Do you know Jesus? Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You would do this for us. That You are the good and true Deliverer that liberates our souls. Please take these things and press them deep into our hearts, we pray. And we lift them up in Your name. Amen.